0: Hello, friends. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today I'm going to be asking where language comes from. The guy I'm going to be asking is the linguist Daniel Everett. And if you caught last week's show, that name should sound familiar because I aired an older interview with Dan from 2007 talking about his, shall we say, most unusual career. We heard how he went from a would-be rock musician to a Christian missionary to an Amazonian linguist how he lived with a tiny tribe called the Pitaha in the Brazilian rainforest, and how their seemingly exotic language led Dan to break ranks with his tribe, that is, other linguists who follow the prevailing theories of Noam Chomsky. And if you missed that interview, you can always listen to it online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or you can download it from iTunes. But it is in no way a prerequisite for the hour ahead, which consists of a new interview with Dan, talking about his alternative views on the origins of language. Dan has a new book out stating his case on that subject. It's called Language, the Cultural Tool. Daniel Everett is Dean of Arts and Sciences at Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts, whence he spoke to me. Well, Dan, it is good to have you back on the show after all these years.
1: It's great to be back.
0: And how many languages can you say that in?
1: Uh I can say it in English, uh Portuguese é muito bom estar de volta. I can say in Pinahan, I tissua ao aga, uhwaihai. Um and uh I could probably think of it in uh a couple of other languages, but uh I'll let it go with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wouldn't normally ask a, a linguist how many languages they speak because uh, I know that's one of those stupid questions that some some linguists get sick of, especially those who are theoreticians and um, and who aren't field linguists. But you're you're the real thing, a, a field linguist who has mastered a number of languages, including not just Pitaha, which we just heard, but some other Amazonian languages as well, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, Pitaha is the only one I speak really fluently, but I, I've lived and, and done field research on quite a few other languages, probably close to 20, and um, I, I spent uh, quite a bit of time with the Bonawa people several months, and uh, I, I was able to get by with simple uh, Bonawa when, when I was there at the end of the time in the village. Um, and have many good friends among uh, many different indigenous groups of Brazil, the Wadi, the Banawa, the Palmarie, the Piraha, the Tenyaring many others.
0: Um, there was an article about you in the um, New Yorker some years ago, and one thing I'll, I'll always remember about it was a description of you, um, well, I don't want to say showing off, but you were, uh, you were addressing a bunch of people and you were challenging oh. them to just throw some terms in. in in any language at you. And and, uh, if I remember right, uh, you were capable of sort of figuring it out, parsing it um, pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I learned this uh, from uh, my first linguistics professor, uh, Kenneth Pike, who was at the University of Michigan, and uh, then with SIL. uh, And um, it's called a monolingual demonstration, where I I stand at the front with a few props, like uh, objects from nature, rocks, sticks, leaves, water, that sort of thing and they bring in somebody who speaks a language I've never heard before. I switch to Pidaha, because I'm pretty sure this person also won't understand (laughs) Pitaha. And uh, we go from there, and at the end of about half an hour of of showing them objects and writing down what they say, I stop and thank them and, and start talking to the audience about what I've learned about the language in those 30 minutes. And, in fact, in the Linguistic Society of America Summer Institute, One year from now, in Michigan, I've been invited to do that for all the linguists.
0: Um, And by the way, you mentioned SIL, which is the... The
1: Summer Institute of Linguistics is what it used to be called. It's a group that um, I was with for 25 years during my time as a missionary, and they do linguistics uh, with the aim of translating the Bible into... uh, all the languages of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, my listeners who have heard my previous interview with you will know a little bit more about your career as a missionary. Um, so we're talking about, you know, being a field linguist, a guy who goes out and actually uh, encounters foreign tongues and and learns about them. But your latest book gets into theory, and in particular it challenges a widespread idea that's very popular in linguistics and beyond uh, that goes sometimes under the name of nativism, and by that we don't mean a political dislike of immigrants. We mean something right. totally different.
1: Yeah, that's right. This new book, Language, the Cultural Tool, actually grows out of all my years of tribal work, and it's, it, it's illustrated throughout with examples from, from my work in the Amazon and then from other languages. The first part, I examine the evidence for the idea that language is innate or that there's a language instinct.
0: And this is what we mean by nativism. That's right. That we we human beings are born with a lot of the fundamentals of language comprehension uh, and grammar sort of hardwired into our brains.
1: That's right. It's part of the genome. That's how the hypothesis works. That's the idea of the language instinct. And there are several problems with that. Uh, But one of the most uh, uh, obvious problems is that the languages of the world differ a great deal more than we might otherwise expect. There was a paper published in Brain and Cognitive Sciences some years ago. The title of that paper was The Myth of Language Universals. The idea that there aren't any things we know about that are really universal to all human languages. And so where do the similarities come from? If we see any similarities between the languages of the world, why do all people speak? Well, the idea is that what really distinguishes humans from other species is our desire uh, to interact, to communicate. We have this to a much greater degree than other species. And, and I argue that communication plus cognition plus culture equals grammar. That's the formula I, I lay out in the book.
0: Well, before we get into the details of your position that you just summarized. Let's talk a little bit about your target, Um, this idea of nativism or what some people have called universal grammar. Uh, The guy most identified with this viewpoint, the the real um, godfather Mm -hmm. (laughs) of that position, is Noam Chomsky. Uh, And um, you were once a Chomskyan yourself. You once believed that we are all endowed from birth genetically with uh, an understanding of a kind of universal grammar and individual languages are just variations on this master plan.
1: Yeah, that's a very good summary of what the idea is. And in fact, in uh, probably the first 20 years of my career as a linguist, I took my objective as a field researcher to be to search for the unfolding of this universal grammar in in many other cultures. And so the idea is to find... um, things that we didn't maybe anticipate and yet take it back to show how these came out of a a single universal grammar. And uh, that was challenging, that was exciting, but after a certain period of time I just felt it didn't work. Uh, But the idea of universal grammar has held sway in linguistics since uh, the late 1950s and Chomsky's work, and it has uh, been the most influential idea probably in the history Of the study of language.
0: You know, I've heard a lot of talk about universal grammar over the years, and and for a long time as a non linguist, I assumed it was pretty much, you know, QED, that it was a proven point, that the case was closed on it. But one thing I never really knew is what does this hypothetical universal grammar look like? What is this sort of blueprint uh, on top of which all human languages are just, uh, you know, deviations and minor deviations at that?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting thing. Back in the 60s and the 70s, 80s, even up until the 90s, there were specific proposals on what all languages should have. But none of those really, really held up. So that in 2002, uh, Chomsky, with his uh, colleagues, Mark Hauser, who was a, a biologist at Harvard, and uh, Tecumseh Fitch, uh, who's currently at the University of of Vienna uh, argued that uh, language uh really boils down to one capacity which they called recursion without going into what that is the fact that Chomsky had gone from a number of very specific claims to one claim just that it's it's just this one fact that's all it is uh, is this considerable backing down from many of the claims that had been investigated over the years nowadays he doesn't even say that he says this universal grammar is just whatever there is about human biology that gives us language, while other species don't have it. the The theory has gotten so uh, watered down, in my opinion, that it really doesn't make any predictions. There is no laid-out blueprint of what universal grammar is. I asked Chomsky. I said, "Well, what are the predictions of universal grammar?" He said, "It doesn't predict anything. Like biology doesn't predict anything. It's a field of study." Um, this is interesting, though, because biology does have some very careful, uh, carefully worked out proposals that can be rigorously tested, and we just don't see this in universal grammar.
0: Now, in the spirit of journalistic distance, I just want to say that you obviously have a strong opinion in this uh, sometimes fractious debate. Yes. I mean, we, we don't have any Chomskians on hand to uh, defend their position, so we'll just note that, that we're getting one side of the of the picture at this point in our conversation. But now now when we look at what made this idea so popular, in fact, so popular that it, it, it's dominated theoretical linguistics uh, for a long time, right? Yes, it um, has
1: for about 60 years now.
0: Yeah, going back to the 1950s. Yeah, in late, fact, late there's late 50s. a conference
1: being planned for Cambridge University uh, in the U.K. in uh, the fall of 2013, um, on 60 Years of the Cognitive Revolution, and uh, Chomsky and I are both invited to speak at that.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That'll be really fascinating, um, you guys on the same stage. I'm sure we won't be at the same time. <laughs> They're going to have to separate you with the referee or something?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I have the greatest respect for Chomsky. I mean, I, di- I disagree with Chomsky about a lot of things, but he was an inspiration to me for most of my career. He's absolutely the smartest human being I've ever met, Uh, There's a great deal about Chomsky that I admire, and I would never want to give the impression that I don't like him or that uh, this is, to me, personal. I think it's become personal to a lot of people, but uh, there's nothing personal in this for me.
0: Um, But Chomskyanism, if I can call it that, was initially kind of a reaction to... An idea that we were a blank slate. Uh, Behaviorism was really popular back in those days in the the 50s when when Chomsky started developing his theories. And the idea that you just take this malleable material that is a a human uh, brain, a human psyche, and can pretty much condition it to do anything. Would you give Chomsky this, that that was incredibly simplistic and someone needed to fight that idea?
1: Um, No, I'm I'm afraid I can't even (laughs) grant that point, because um, uh, a couple of years ago I was invited to give the B.F. Skinner Annual Lecture at the American Behavioral Association. It turns out there are thousands of people who do not know that this war was won, who still practice behaviorism uh, and find it a very satisfying uh, research program. There there are also two new books out that, that make some really interesting remarks. One of them is by a philosopher from New York University, Jesse Prince, called Beyond Human Nature. The other one is by uh, E.O. Wilson, his Social Conquest of the Earth. And in both of them, uh, they argue that the mind is not a uh, blank slate. I don't think that Skinner would have said it was a blank slate. He just hard to get at. But that um, it's not as well furnished as as others might lead us to believe. E.O. Wilson says that when Chomsky's work first came out, uh, he was overwhelmed by its power and was a keen fan. But over the years, as he's seen, and this is a, this is at the beginning, the introduction to the book, as he's seen the lack of predictions and the directions the research has taken, he, he believes that maybe B.F. Skinner uh, actually comes out the winner in that argument.
0: Wow. Yeah, you know, you bring up B.F. Skinner, uh, the leader of the behaviorists, who some people say was defeated and vanquished for all time by Chomsky. Uh, And now you're telling us that, in fact, Skinnerianism in some form or behaviorism is still alive and well. And uh, it just reminds me of how brutal and and sort of winner-take-all these intellectual debates uh, and academic debates um, seem to become.
1: Academics is tribal. I have to say that uh, now that I'm a dean and I deal with, of course, all the faculty that I deal with at my university are wonderful people and there's no fractiousness and so nobody uh, is unhappy ever. But uh, dealing with faculty over the years and academics, our payoff is not usually money, okay? Academics make a reasonable salary, but we're not financiers. We're not on Wall Street. We don't have an idea, exploit it, and then suddenly get wealthy. That's not usually what happens at least in the humanities and social sciences our biggest payoff is in terms of the respect that our ideas gain and the power that our ideas begin to have in the field so that whether you're a follower of bf skinner or a follower of chomsky we fix our beliefs we go full steam ahead we wrap our careers up in that and that ultimately is our payoff and that's unhealthy in many ways and a number of philosophers of science and Historians of science have noticed this over the years, and, and there's just something primordial about it. In in, uh, <laughs> it doesn't have to. You don't have to say it's part of human nature. It's just the way we organize ourselves.
0: You're right that that in some ways, you know, the uh, the acrimony in academic debates comes from ego. Let's face it. People stake their entire careers on an idea. And if you really want to make a name, you come out with a big theory, a big unifying theory, a theory of everything uh, with regard to your, your field. And, you know, if you look over the history of science, theories of everything are the source of a great deal of progress and insight, but they often turn out not to really be all encompassing, and holes are sooner or later found, and they start to get sort of chipped away at. Now, in entering this debate with your own proposal, which is that... Language isn't all built into our brains, that in fact um, some more general faculties of the brain are put to work creating languages for specific cultural purposes. I think I, that's, that's the thumbnail version of your... Yeah, that's it. That's right. <laughs> but in, in wading in, are you getting into that rather, I don't know, hazardous territory of your own big theory?
1: Um, I have ideas, but I'm not sure that I would call what I'm working on a theory that starts from axioms and, and builds up uh, from there. There's a lot of empirical research that needs to be done. What I would like to see my work as doing is to uh, inspire people who are doing field research to look for connections between um, culture and language. And in fact, I have a with a co-author, um, Jeanette Sockle of the University of the West of England. We also have a brand new Textbook out from Cambridge University Press on how to do linguistic fieldwork, and and we talk about how to do this kind of research in there. And it's our hope that people will, when they have a few minutes away, you know, break in the field from doing Chomsky and work, they can uh, <laughs> they can look at the connections between language and culture. Uh, a lot of psychologists are looking at this these, these days, and a number of anthropologists. That's you know, as I reflect on the field, Edward Sapir. Um, my my idol if i have one in linguistics who who died in 1939 so i never met him but who influenced uh american linguistics more than anyone else probably except chomsky uh argued that linguistics departments really were counterproductive that you shouldn't have linguistics departments you should have linguists in other departments in language departments in anthropology departments um, but he really saw linguistics as part of anthropology and his fear of linguistics departments was that the subject matter would become too reified so that people would see linguistics apart from culture. And that was what he was concerned about. And I think his concerns were valid.
0: Mm. Well, you start your book with a couple of epigraphs, one from the anthropologist Claude Levi strauss yes, uh, that says, Instead of notions borrowed from books and immediately changed into philosophical concepts, I was confronted with the lived experience of Native societies, By the commitment of the observer, my mind escaped from the claustrophobic steam bath to which it had been confined by the practice of philosophical reflection, led to the open air it felt refreshed by the new breath. Like a city dweller released in the mountains, I became intoxicated while my dazzled eyes examined the richness and variety of the scene. So there's a little... I'm going to call that a little myth and something that Cloud Levy Strauss would have been very familiar with. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> a little myth about letting go of 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 theory and just looking at you know empirically at the world. But you know, there are, you've obviously read some philosophy of science, so you know there are people who say you really can't do that. It, we're always guided by some you know sort of organizing ideas, whether they be Chomskyan or anti-Chomskyan or absolutely. Yeah. So you know, when you let go of Chomskyanism you wouldn't make the claim that you were just being guided by the pure, unadulterated facts. I mean, some new ideas had entered your brain, yeah?
1: Yeah, no kidding. I'm a very opinionated person, so <laughs> I have... Uh, there's never been a time when I've just been out there and said, let me sit here and meditate, and nature will dictate its terms to me. Um, uh, yeah, I clearly, I have theories that I work with and ideas that I work with. The point of the Levi-Strauss uh, quote, and if I could write like Levi-Strauss, I'd have a much bigger house. Uh, <laughs> th- <laughs> The, the the point of that quote is simply that it's a shock to your system. When you leave your nice wood-paneled office in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or uh, uh, Los Angeles, California, <laughs> or Cambridge, England, and you take off uh, to the field, it's a shock to your system. It wakes you up. It slaps you in the face. It lets you know that the world might not be quite the way you thought it was, or it's a lot more complicated than you thought it was. That doesn't mean that you go there with no ideas but it means you're probably going to get a lot of new ideas and you're going to see the poverty of some of the ideas that you felt so strongly about and and that's why field research is so important Um, you know people who do field research um, always have their own opinions about how language works but we are all united by the reality of the field experience the uh, the difficulties the bugs, the loneliness the grasping for something because you've been there six months on a federal grant and you can't figure out anything you've learned is it worth your time margaret mead wrote some great letters to franz boas when she was in western samoa uh... studying adolescent sexuality about she wasn't sure if she was finding anything of any significance whatsoever uh... of course she changed the world through her research in some ways Um but it's a common uh experience of field researchers, and Levi-Strauss caught that experience really well. I have to say, in in honesty and advertising, that Levi-Strauss really only had about three weeks of field experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, he's known primarily for a very, very high-minded, you know, theory, uh, or or theories.
1: No, no, he had actually very little (laughs) field research. so did Franz Boas, the father of American anthropology, He also had very little field research. I mean, compared, you know, to people today, I... uh, 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 back when I was doing research, when I started my research on the Amazon, I was the only uh, American-based scholar who was regularly doing research in the Amazon. And uh, today, there are a lot of them, and, and the standards are getting higher. My son's a better linguist than I am, and I know a lot of the new generation who, who go to the field equipped with much better training than I had. Uh, and they all have ideas, but nevertheless, it's a slap in the face, and they go through this humbling uh, learning experience that is just an inseparable part of the field experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, when you, uh, in your case, when you were plunked down among the Pitaha in, in the center of the Amazon, um, first as a missionary, but you know, gradually became a, a linguist, you were reduced to almost childlike helplessness, yeah?
1: That's absolutely <laughs> right. I couldn't ask anybody about anything, and not only that, I didn't know anything about anything <laughs> that was relevant. You can you can go with your mind full of Bertrand Russell and Noam Chomsky to the jungle, but when night comes, it's pretty good if you know how to make a fire and hang a hammock and, and make sure there are no snakes around, and what do you do if you find a snake? So there's a lot of stuff that happens in the jungle that, that teaches you that the study of our fellow human beings takes all of us, not just our minds. It takes our bodies, our minds, our dispositions, and, and in my case, also my family.
0: hmm By the way, you mentioned Bertrand Russell. He is the the guy who wrote the other epigraph that opens this book. I might as well read that, too. Yeah. If a man is offered a fact which goes against his instincts, he will scrutinize it closely, and unless the evidence is overwhelming, he will refuse to believe it. If, on the other hand, he is offered something which affords a reason for acting in accordance to his instincts, he will accept it even on the slightest evidence. The origin of myths is explained in this way. Okay, so yeah. I love that quote. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Um, so let's not neglect the particulars of the argument. Let's go back to the nativist idea, the Chomskyan idea, that languages, at least the fundamental sort of architecture of languages, is built into our brains. And And part of the seemingly persuasive evidence for this is that languages are incredibly complicated, and yet kids seem to master them much faster than they should without, you know, all the cues that you would imagine they might need to understand grammar. You know, they take overheard conversations and all kinds of interactions and come out, you know, fully competent speakers of very, very complicated languages in a really short time. And and the fact that there just doesn't seem to be enough stimulus to have completely guided them is called the poverty of stimulus argument.
1: Right, or as... uh Psycholinguist Dan Slobin of the University of California, Berkeley, has called it the poverty of imagination. <laughs> um, so so that, there are some myths right there. There is the myth that children learn language incredibly quickly. Well, what does quickly mean? It takes them years to learn it, right? Yeah. You know, if a child was, was born and, and a couple of months later was speaking fluent English, that, that might be some absolute sign of quickness. But when does, when does somebody stop learning a language? Uh, never. Children learn uh, languages quickly, but uh, they learn a lot of stuff quickly at that age. Jean Piaget said that one thing that distinguishes what children have to do when they learn their language, their first language, and what adults do when they learn a second language, is that children are forming their very identity. That language becomes their identity because it's the first one they've learned. It's the community that they, they're learning in. Whereas when we learn a second language, um, our identity is not so caught up in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I do know people who've learned second languages who are probably indistinguishable from native speakers. So first of all, nobody says what it means for a child to learn quickly. Um, And then the idea that they don't have enough evidence, the poverty of stimulus, Plato's problem, which I have a chapter in the book called Does Plato Have a Problem?, (laughs) <laughs> and and the conclusion is no. Chomsky calls the poverty stimulus argument Plato's problem because Plato, uh, in promoting er- uh, Socrates' ideas, argued that we never really learn anything, we simply remember what we already learned, and uh, that all ideas are not innate in us, but they, they exist
0: in heaven. But the, what came to be known as a priori knowledge right that that's there, right there are some categories of knowledge that seem to be innate and and that was you know picked up on by a lot of Western philosophers, including kant
1: yes, and so have have these people been shown to be absolutely wrong? No, but I would say that there is a growing number of people and at least equal in numbers to the people who believe in a priori knowledge that it 's not quite that clear after all that uh, uh, we have to go through these things case by case and look at them and see. Uh, and, and a lot of them just don't stand up to uh, rigorous evaluation. And I and I talk about these in the book. But here's a prediction that nativism makes that it never wants to admit that it makes. So, uh, so what are the predictions? Well, the predictions are actually hard to find. But if language is on the genes, is is part of our genome, then we know this. We know that human cultures uh, can select random mutations in the genes to make certain individuals more fit for a particular culture than they otherwise would have been. This is called dual inheritance theory. So uh, in the last 7,500 years in human history, uh, a gene has been manipulated by culture for certain populations to be able to uh, digest milk after infancy.
0: This is when sort of dairy animals were domesticated. We had to develop the ability to handle lactose.
1: That's right. So it's called lactase persistence, which is that lactase being the enzyme that breaks down lactose, so, right. so that persists beyond infancy. Right. Uh, we see also, for example, in certain Tibetan populations, uh, genetic modifications over the last three thousand years that enable them to process oxygen more efficiently uh, at high altitudes, which mm-hmm. obviously is helpful to their to their chosen environment. So we have plenty of evidence that cultures, they don't cause the genes to mutate. Genes are mutating all the time, but cultures sure. exert a s- selective force, a selectional force upon certain genes that enable people to fit the lifestyle of particular cultures. So, so take uh, something that's been around in human, in human beings probably throughout their history, dyslexia. Dyslexia is not a problem if you're a Cro-Magnon, you know, drawing uh, paintings in the caves. But it becomes difficult if you're trying to make a life a success in a very literate culture. Uh, It it imposes a handicap on you that it would not have been for your ancestors. It's possible that uh, that could be bred out of society.
0: Not that that's actually happening. No one, uh, as far as I can tell, literacy and reproductive success have no correlation whatsoever.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, human males being what they are, there's very little correlation between anything and reproduction. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah, I'm just bringing this up as an example. But, but so now let's take something like uh, this, the fact that in Spanish and Portuguese, Italian, and many other Romance languages, the subject doesn't have to be expressed in the sentence in Portuguese, if I want to say that it's raining, I don't need to say it is raining. I simply say, is raining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this characteristic of Romance languages goes back to Indo-European, so we know that it's at least 6,000 years old, probably older than that. So in the course of time, why is there no population that we know of that has selected a gene that um, others don't have, so they could learn Portuguese, but let's say they could never learn English. Or you could learn English, but you could never learn Portuguese. If language is on the genes, and we know that cultures exert selectional pressures on the genes, then one prediction is not that everybody can learn language, but that some populations will not be able to learn all languages.
0: Well, hmm. uh, well an- another prediction would be that we would see uh, mutations uh, and see abnormalities, you know, linguistic uh, uh, variations that were genetically based, have any been found? I mean, we, we talk about dyslexia. I mean, is that a, is that no, a case? No, I mean,
1: what, what you see is when there's, a, there's a term that's used in, in the literature called specific language impairment. So the idea is that you've got somebody who, whose lexicon, their, their words, are just fine. They just don't know how to put them together to form sentences. Right, right. Or their, or their sentences are fine. They just can't pronounce them properly. Uh, so, so, there are all sorts of uh, proposals for these specific language impairments, but when you look at these more carefully, you find it's not just that the syntax is off, but some other cognitive areas are off too. What, what has not been found is evidence that there is a disease that affects one specific part of language and absolutely nothing else, because that's what you'd need to show. So, the other alternative is that there's a region of the brain, let's say, that's responsible for um, a sequential activity okay putting words together in a sentence is a sequential activity uh... riding a bicycle is sequential activity uh, pronouncing words is sequential activity uh... so what you find is that the level of brain damage is not done at the low level of language but done at these higher levels say sequential activity so-
0: so your your thesis is that the brain gives us more general uh, sort of intelligence that we apply to problems, including language, but right. not not a specific set of language faculties or a language organ, which is uh, a term that's been used by some folks who who propose that language is innate. Um, and uh, you know, commonly cited as examples of innate language equipment are a couple areas of the brain, Broca's area, which is you know said to be involved in speech and Right. How do you pronounce Wernicke's area? Uh,
1: Wernicke's area and Broca's area. <laughs> okay, okay. So they I said those them both really wrong. Interesting histories. And, and most linguistics introductory linguistics classes, or even some introductory psychology classes, teach those as the language areas. So uh, uh, Broca was a French uh, physician who had um, uh, a subject who had apparently had a syphilitic lesion on his brain. And this person was called Tan, T-A-N, Tan, because that's all he could say, Tan, 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 that's all he could say. So uh, after he died, Rokad did an, uh, an uh, autopsy. He looked at his brain, found this lesion, and declared that the part of the brain that specialized for at least this part of language. Uh, there, there are a couple of issues with that. First of all, um, it's not clear, because that brain was preserved, actually that that part of the brain was what was damaged. Mm. Um, Mm. The second is that for any subject, saying where Broca's area falls is almost impossible. It it varies in people. Uh, Another problem is that it's not just for language. It's one of those areas that has a, a group of higher functions of which language or certain aspects of language are just one manifestation of a general cognitive ability, such as sequentiality or memory or... Uh, general intelligence. A lot of the people that have language problems that are listed as sufferers of specific language impairment have lower cognitive functionality across the board.
0: Um, So I imagine you'd say the same thing applies with uh, brain damage due to strokes that result in various language problems known as aphasias. That This damage is not just restricted to language abilities.
1: Exactly. So if you find specific parts of the brain that are implicated in specific language behaviors, that's fine, but you can't say that that's dedicated to that linguistic behavior. If is the case, and it is the case in all the uh, reports that we have, that that part of the brain is also used for other things, and that there's, this, there's a more general relationship between all of these things.
0: Getting back for just a, a brief moment to the poverty of stimuli argument, um I always assumed that you know some linguists had long ago done a conclusive study that showed that kids just aren't exposed to enough information from the environment to learn all the rules all the linguistic rules that they eventually acquire. Has anybody done such a study and proved one way or another whether there is enough information or there isn't
1: no no, no such study in all the sixty years of uh theorizing about uh, innate language, that, that's a fascinating thing. In fact, um, uh, the, the linguist uh, Jeffrey Pullum, along with his uh, uh, now-deceased wife, Barbara Schultz, a philosopher, wrote a paper called the, the Poverty of Stimulus Arguments Reconsidered, and they basically demolished the current versions of poverty of stimulus, showing they gave a list of things that you'd need to show this, this, and this. You'd have to meet these standards before you could claim that there's a poverty of stimulus. And their arguments are that, you know, they're not saying that innatism is wrong, but they're saying no one has produced an argument that meets these standards.
0: By the way, you mentioned Jeff Pullum, who's been on this radio show and was uh, for many years uh, a linguistics professor at UC Santa Cruz. I'm sure people in our listening audience will know Jeff well. He's at the University of Edinburgh now, Yes.
1: Yes, but he's moving to Brown University, just 40 minutes south of me, uh, in the fall. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: I was going to ask you, anyway, just how common are anti- or non-Chomskyan ideas in in linguistics? And I I know Jeff is definitely not a Chomskyan either. In fact, there are quite a few linguists who aren't, right?
1: I would say that it's it's, uh, in the U.S. and in some parts of South America— uh, Chomsky's and uh, you know one or two places in uh, in Europe, Chomsky's ideas are very, very uh, held on to very strongly, but in 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 most of Europe, in my experience, and in large uh, portions of U.S. departments, his ideas are not taken that uh, seriously anymore. Hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to put it in a demeaning way. I'm just uh, so let me rephrase it. Rather than say they're not taken seriously they don't inform the research of many people.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm. Uh, so, so if you go, for example, to the uh, Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, which is one of the greatest centers for research on language in the world, on one end you have linguist Bernard Comrie, who for many years was professor at the University of Southern California directing the Linguistics Department, and on the other end you have uh, Mike Tomasello, who was for many years uh... at emory university and they study primates they study human languages from around the world uh... Um, uh... tomasello says universal grammar is dead he's been quoted saying that many times <laughs> it just doesn't do any work for us and his research is on on the evolution of language and and uh, both within the individual the on, on uh... of language as well as the phylogeny of language how it evolves in the species And he has a primate zoo that belongs to the Max Planck in Leipzig, and a number of students that uh, look at a variety of primates and and study humans as well, and canine cognition, and the the boundary lines that are supposed to be there just uh, aren't aren't quite as uh, strong as we might have thought.
0: Hmm. You mentioned phylogeny, the sort of family tree, the evolutionary tree of language, and um, as far as any you know, underlying similarities among human languages, and you say, indeed, they're, they're quite different, but if there are similarities found, there is another way to explain them other than innate faculties in the human brain. Maybe they all have a common ancestor.
1: Yeah, there are two ways to explain them. The one is that how many times did language evolve in the history of the world? Well, maybe it only evolved once. There's, there have been recent papers arguing exactly for that hypothesis, that language evolved in Africa, and that all human languages found in the world today are descendants of that language. And so why wouldn't they have similarities? The, the other source of similarity between languages of the world, if you find them, I mean, all, you know, I, I think that the idea that no universals is a little bit strong, but all languages have words, all languages have sentences.
0: They all have of. nouns and verbs, don't they? I mean, they all have basic components.
1: Well, they all, it's not necessarily the case they all have nouns and verbs, but they all have an ability to distinguish things from events. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so however they do it, the most common solution is a noun for a thing and a verb for an event, but there are other ways of doing it. Mm. But, um, you know, if you take, look at the bow and arrow. Um, most cultures have bows and arrows. And do we need to say that the shape of the bow and arrow is innate because it looks alike in all the cultures of the world? No, I mean, that's pretty much the way it has to look if it's going to solve the problem that it solves, which is, uh shooting a projectile that kills protein that moves faster than I can. <laughs> and, and so you just have to have it designed in a certain way or it doesn't work. And so you either happen upon that solution or you don't. If you do, you have a bow and arrow. Um, language is something that's essential to our survival. Uh, I've, I've referred to this as the interaction instinct. Um, so an instinct can't be language because that requires learning, and no instinct requires learning. An instinct is like baby turtles working their way back to the ocean who've been born out on the beach. Um, They didn't learn that. They just immediately start towards the ocean. Well, I think that interaction might be an instinct, um, but there's no structure to that. It's just the desire to interact, and we need to have a community, and language is the natural solution to that, and the components that we find in it are pretty natural solutions, like the string of a bow and arrow and, and the shape of the bow. They're pretty natural solutions to... Uh, the, the problem of communication uh, at, at a human level. Uh, so, so how complex is language? Uh, well, I mean, I talk in the book about how to build a human language, and um, there's a great quote from Herbert Simon, the Nobel Prize-winning uh, winning economist from 1978. He wrote an article in 1962 called "The Architecture of Complexity," in which he argued that very often, how complex a domain seems. Depends on the perspective of the scientists working in the domain. Great scientific advances are very often the result of someone coming along and saying, "Hey, it's not that hard. It's much simpler <laughs> than you thought it was." And uh, there, there are linguists. Uh, I have a good friend in Germany, Robert Van Valen, who won the uh, Humboldt Prize uh, in Germany, which is a, an extremely uh, prestigious scientific award there for his theory of language in which he takes some of these things that just seem so complicated that, as a Chomsky and I thought, were so complicated, and he he shows very simple solutions to them, which not only uh, simplify what linguistics is all about, but easy things that children could learn.
0: You're reminding me uh, of a kind of computing method that's become popular, which is statistical and has been used, for instance, with IBM's Watson, the Jeopardy-winning computer, which is... Don't even try to create an intelligent machine. Certainly don't try to emulate human intelligence. Just feed it a bunch of data and use statistical programs to let it find the best solution, uh, which is incredibly simple at bottom, and right. yet results in seemingly, seemingly intelligent behavior or outcomes. Is, is that idea you know, being proposed as is a, is a very different way that we might learn languages? Yeah,
1: how do we, how do we know that children don't do exactly that? Here's an interesting thing. Some psychologists are are trained in the classical sense, but a lot of linguists of a particular generation, especially the linguists of Chomsky's generation, not the new linguists that are being trained today in most departments, but still most Chomsky linguists lack the basic mathematical skills of social science. It is changing. It's a a very healthy trend. But, you know, um, when when, uh, linguists under 40 write papers, there's very often uh, a lot of statistics that they didn't get any help with. They did this themselves. Uh, they, they did their own math. They designed their own experiments. They, they, they have a, a mathematical sophistication that wasn't expected when linguistics was largely considered to be part of the humanities. Uh, I think that's one of the problems of moving linguistics out of the social sciences, out of anthropology and into the humanities, mm-hmm. is that a certain skill set was lost. Among linguists, so that their research um, is is largely uh, the, the research of program of philosophy you you make a proposal and you think about it, and you get some data and think well if i 'm right this must be this must be right but there 's a, a new paper that uh, Ted Gibson and evelina Federenko from MIT have published, which has um, caused quite a stir in linguistics about the importance of quantitative methods in strato linguistic studies and they argue that if linguists don't get better quantitative training and use more quantitative methods they really are are behind the development of science as a whole and they produce hypotheses that are going to generate much more feeble and harder to test results and and that's that's part of the reason that linguists haven't considered these other possibilities statistical possibilities is just the culture of linguistics now psychologists have never had that problem and there are psychologists that do follow you know Chomsky's ideas and think Chomsky's got it right and of course they do have that kind of that level of sophistication but there are a number of others who do think that statistics not only can replicate human behavior but might themselves be the basis of human learning
0: and intelligence uh, which would be kind of shocking to those of us who like to see human intelligence in an almost mystical light, <laughs> a Promethean light, you know, right, as, as right. this gift that was bestowed on us as opposed to the operation of a statistical process. God, how demoralizing that would be.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we want to think of ourselves as having great insights. I'm actually working on a, on a new book uh, called The Dark Matter of the Mind, and uh, in there I talk about the background information that society provides that we can never state. It's just there. We learn it by inference from the way that we hold our bodies to the kinds of things we talk about. It's never formally instructed, and we're never formally aware of it unless we go off and just think very hard about some things, and we'll discover maybe one-tenth of it. And and I think these are background statistical generalizations that we've drawn from society that are below the level of consciousness that sort of guide our behavior. And, And we've all had the experience of... Of doing things we can 't really explain why we 're doing it, but we're pretty sure this is going to work out. Um, hunches and guesses and that sort of thing
0: well yeah it 's certainly a huge amount of um, research in recent years and, and certainly a lot of, of of popular science as well has focused on the ninety plus percent of the mental iceberg that may be unconscious you know and and then that leaves us with the question is what the hell is this thing we call consciousness for? Because it seems to do so little when you get right down to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it makes us depressed. (laughs) That's one thing. I mean, I I would, uh, you know, I think consciousness is, um, you know, it's not always uh, what it's cracked cracked up to be.
0: Incidentally, Ted Gibson, who you spoke of a moment ago, is a former grad student of yours. Um, in linguistics, but also a cognitive scientist uh, at MIT, and so he's advocating for this sort of hard science approach to uh, a lot right. of linguistic problems.
1: Well, Ted learned very little from me. <laughs> <laughs> he, Ted Ted did his uh, master's degree at Cambridge University in computer science, and went to do a PhD in computational linguistics at Carnegie Mellon University about a year before I was hired at Pittsburgh, and then I became his advisor on all things linguistics and was officially uh, co-chair of his thesis committee. But uh, my my joy with working with Ted was that every week when we met, I learned stuff. I don't know how much he learned, but (laughs) I learned a great deal working with
0: him. Um, Tell me this, though. Does this debate have to be a winner-take-all debate? Is it possible that, gee whiz, maybe the nativists are right about some language abilities and that your cultural model language as a cultural tool that is that it's that it's something that cultures create using the basic more fundamental properties of our intelligence. Could it be that there's a little of this, a little of that?
1: Yeah, of course it's it's possible. In fact, I would be surprised if, uh, you know, in most vociferous debates everybody's right. Yeah. In some way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's entirely possible that they're right. One of the things that has struck me is that people demand a greater degree of evidence from me than they would demand from uh, other people they say you know extraordinary claims require mm-hmm. extraordinary evidence mm-hmm. i don't see my claims as that extraordinary what i find extraordinary is the idea that every human is born with a language that grows out of their genome uh, a grammar uh, a core grammar it keeps getting qualified that's an extraordinary claim for which no extraordinary evidence has ever been provided but uh, the idea that uh, that languages are shaped by cultures uh, that's not so extraordinary, actually. And there are plenty of examples, and I give a lot of those in the book. You know, I, when I gave a plenary lecture two years ago at the German Linguistic Society before about 800 linguists, and the guy who introduced me said, uh, Dan's work is really controversial in the U.S., apparently. Of course, we all take this for granted. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's, um, it really depends on where you're coming from. I think that the problem has been that I have said that the evidence for universal grammar is is weak and that PIDAHA is is the reason one of the reasons that it's weak so if you say that okay I've talked about all these different components of universal grammar but today I'm saying that only recursion this ability to put one phrase inside of another is what makes humans different from all other species and what makes human language different from all other communication systems if that's your only claim then that looks to me to be falsified by Peter Ha, and and also other languages.
0: Um, now that paper you're talking about, where the stake in the ground <laughs> was pounded in by Chomsky, Hauser, and Fitch, and you know the, the declaration seemingly made that you know what really makes human languages unique is this ability called recursion. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the definition of it, but you know it's basically an ability to make complex linguistic structures out of simpler components often, this is just one way of doing it, by embedding, say, phrases inside of each other, uh, a la, uh, you know, this is the malt that lay in the house that Jack built.
1: If that's all you can do that you haven't shown recursion, recursion is taking that ability to embed, and meaning there's no upper cutoff.
0: Okay, so you can keep doing that with infinite variations. I mean, there
1: are various definitions of recursion. I think it would be, you know, and I, I talk about this, Uh, you know, people define recursion. Mathematicians define recursion one way. Computer scientists use a slightly different definition. Linguists use different definitions. It's a morass, almost, of of different definitions. So every time you say, this has been falsified, they say, well, I didn't actually mean that. This is what I meant.
0: Right. Recursion is is complicated. It's not that easy to define sometimes. But, But Chomsky, Hauser, and Fitch posited that it was essential. And then, I think, since then, am I right that they've backed off that claim? So that's not no longer, at least, their uh, well, they, be all and end all of argument it for a
1: couple of reasons. Because th- here's the claim: the claim was that only humans had recursion, and he- recursion was the basis for all human languages. So that can be falsified in two ways. The first is to show that animals reason recursively. Then that would show it's not unique to humans. And the second is to show that a human language or some set of human languages don't require recursion, because then it can't be the basis for human language. Both of those have been shown, so they have backed off but that backing off leaves them with what really basically nothing because that was the only claim so now chomsky won't say that recursion is the narrow language faculty he 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 might say that a specific type of recursion which he calls merge is but uh that that really doesn't get us any farther or he will say universal grammar is just whatever is different about human biology that makes language possible uh But that doesn't make much sense either, because nobody researching, whether they believe in grammar as part of the genes or not, would deny that humans speak better than dogs. (laughs) So clearly there's something different about human biology. But uh, is it specific to language? And the answer there seems to be no. Also, that earlier prediction that I said, that if grammar is carried in the genes, we would expect cultural selectional pressures to have affected populations so that some grammars can't be learned by all populations that doesn't seem the case so ironically although chomsky says that universal grammar is obviously true because every human can learn a language any language that's exactly the reverse of what they predict they predict that that's not the case whereas if language is a cultural tool then i do predict that every human can learn every language because there's nothing specifically genetic about language per se
0: hmm. Hmm. Um, I should note that this debate over whether or not uh, the Pidaha language has recursion got heated to a point that I think would amaze non-linguists. It got pretty bloody there for a while. And, well, it's still going on, by the it's way. It's still going on, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and just to to leave listeners with what I hope is a, a correct idea, you claim that there is no recursion in the Pidaha language. Others claim that there's not enough evidence to establish that and some say there's counter evidence based on your own studies your earlier studies uh, of petah but Correct. at this point it's probably fair to say no one really can be sure i know that part of the problem that's often cited is this is an amazing fact you are the only linguist in the world who actually really knows the petah language
1: yeah so so this is again a set of myths that's been propagated to so so there are two other people who speak Good But
0: they're not linguists, right, or are they? Oh,
1: yes, they both are.
0: Oh! Uh, Steve
1: Sheldon, who was okay. has a master's degree in linguistics, he was the uh, missionary who was in the Pinaja before me. He's alive and well, has collected lots of data, has lots of data, has turned it over to researchers uh-huh. to look at. Uh, my former wife, Karen uh, Medora, used to be Karen Everett, uh, still lives down there, still has regular contact with the Pinaja. She has a master's degree in linguistics from the University of Pittsburgh, She speaks the language probably at least as well as I do now Mm -hmm. that she's had more years since I've left there. Um, And so these people have lots of data, and they speak the language. The other thing is that, um, yes, in my doctoral dissertation, I give examples not of recursion but of embedding. Uh, One example, and I said, um, you know, this looks like embedding. Um, I've changed my mind. That was all based on one little part of a word meaning something, and I don't think it means that, and I give, I've given a lot of evidence for that. So the, there are our data, for example, a, a lot of text collected by Steve Sheldon that I've recently given to uh, a set of research teams. They're, they're pretty far along in their analysis. One is uh, Ray Jackendoff and his colleague, Eva Wittenberg, from Tufts University, and, and they are writing a book on the complexity of language, and they've looked at all of these texts that have never been published from Steve Sheldon, and they've looked at all my data, and their conclusion is Pinaha doesn't seem to have recursion. Also, they looked at another language from Indonesia, Riau, and they say that also seemed to lack recursion. So in their theory, and by the way, they both, at least Ray, believes in universal grammar of a very different sort than Chomsky's, uh, in their theory, it's almost predicted, that, in fact it is predicted, that there will be languages that lack recursion. So they've looked at the data, they think it's convincing. They've also looked at all the counter-arguments, and they don't find those as convincing.
0: But uh, I would say that if I've read your book right, or if I've even listened to our conversation uh, with any grasp of what's going on, that your arguments really don't depend on recursion in Pitaha at all. I oh, mean, no.
1: The book, you take out all the references to yeah. recursion in Pitaha yeah. from Language the Cultural Tool, and the argument continues exactly the same.
0: Right, which is why we've spent so little time talking about recursion today. Yeah, which um, I'm
1: very actually glad about. I'm the one who brought it up. Uh, I shouldn't. I guess. Shame on you.
0: I was going to bring it up briefly and just say, well, that issue hasn't quite been settled to the satisfaction of everybody, but it doesn't really matter for the bigger picture. Exactly, and
1: it never will be settled to the satisfaction of everybody.
0: Um, Dan, uh, I recently saw a documentary about you on the Smithsonian TV channel. It's called The Grammar of Happiness. And, um, you know, having talked to you over the years and even done a story myself for NPR about you, uh, I had still never really seen films of the Piedaha and you with the Petaha, And this documentary gave me a chance to see you with them. It shows you um, on this really kind of cool-looking double-decker riverboat going, you know, up the river and uh, visiting them. Uh, but it also shows what's happened in recent years. For a long time, they were quite isolated But now they aren't so isolated, and the Brazilian government has begun doing some development, uh, I think, with seemingly good intentions, building things, clinics, and stuff like that. But obviously, a huge potential for cultural change, to say the least, among a group of, a tiny group of people who've had their own culture and their own language for quite a long time. What's your feeling about that?
1: It's very difficult for me um, to see it objectively. Um, you know, I, I love these people. Uh, I feel about them as though they're part of my family. And uh, one of the, the things that they've most enjoyed, their happy-go-lucky attitude, really, in the spite of real serious problems, they maintain such a positive, happy outlook on life. I think that's likely to change. I think that one thing that's happened with a lot of societies is that when they see Western goods for the first time and they're made dependent on them that they begin to feel poor. They never felt poor. They never had a concept of poverty. But now I think they're going to start to feel poor because they're going to become dependent on generators, on buildings, on outside food, on materials that they cannot supply themselves. And so if you take away the government support, they go from having these things to not having them. So A, it makes them dependent on the government. B, it creates a pressure to go places where they can earn money to get these things. I think it's pod- Potentially devastating. At the same time, I think it's inevitable. This has happened to just about every indigenous group in the world. And the thing to do is ask the Pitaha. The current Pitaha, when you ask them, um, do not all object to this. Many of them think it's a good thing. And that's really their decision. Um, they don't have the historical perspective that I do, but I'm not them. It's not my responsibility or my right to choose for them. And so uh, their lives are going to change. And and all I really wish for them is that um, they stay happy. I, I mean, I really, uh, I'm very concerned about it, but I'm out of the picture.
0: Mm. It's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, uh, I find myself believing a lot of the time that uh, advanced technology and, uh, you know, commercial civilization hasn't made us happier, but then I'm not going to be, one who gives up all my stuff and goes back to the bush uh yeah exactly i
1: mean people ask me you know aren't you pita ha by now and i said no i'm not i would i've lived in the jungle for a aggregate of eight years just with the pita ha i'd still rather have a five-star hotel in amsterdam
0: (laughs) that is disarmingly honest of you dan
1: (laughs) yeah i mean there's no question about it i i um i don't like bugs i'm a terrible hunter I'm a terrible fisherman, and the Piedaha, you know, they feel sorry <laughs> for me, so they take care of me. But, uh, and I love being with them. I, I enjoy my time there. But, uh, when I've been there for say six months, I start really dreaming of a nice, juicy steak in an air-conditioned restaurant with a gin and tonic.
0: Um,
1: so, uh, no, I'm not a Pidaha. Um
0: You told me once that you had never seen a, a grown pitaha man miss with an arrow shot, but in that documentary that shows one of them missing a monkey, was that faked or did they really miss?
1: <laughs> oh, well, you know, they, they might miss a monkey up in a tree, that, that's something they almost never shoot with bows and arrows ah. Their are bows and arrows they use primarily to fish uh-huh. and so i've never seen a man miss while he was fishing uh i've also when they go hunt monkeys, they do kill monkeys with arrows, but it's really rare these days. They have a couple of shotguns, and that's the way they prefer to hunt the monkeys and also it was probably faked
0: um How many pitaha are there left at this point?
1: When I was there in 2009, which was the last time I was there, the government told me that the most recent census showed 750 pitaha, which is a tremendous increase over what we had seen before.
0: Um, so the population's growing. On the other hand, with all this um, contact with outsiders, I imagine the language itself might be somewhat endangered?
1: I don't think the language is in danger right now. It's too important to them and and too much a part of their identity. But, uh, you know, will Portuguese start to trickle in? Sure. Will people there start to learn Portuguese? Yes. Will some of the people who want more of the Western goods want to live someplace and and speak Portuguese more? Probably. So it's not going to happen in this generation or the next generation, but the generation after that, it could.
0: Well Dan it has been great talking to you uh, and um, could you say something in unadulterated pitaha by way of closing
1: uh, that means i am very sad that i can't see the pitaha. it has been a long time since i've seen the pitaha.
0: Oh well, we're going to end on a sad note Dan
1: <laughs> And then i'll okay so will say uh kage pai Iga um, pau uh, The, the Pitaha are great fishers.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. In closing, the Pitaha are great fishers. Uh, it's It really has been a pleasure to talk to you, though. I really enjoyed it.
1: It's been great talking to you, too, Robert. Thanks for having me.
0: Dan Everett's new book is Language, the Cultural Tool. And you can hear my previous interview with Dan Everett talking about his very interesting career. At our website, Seventh Avenue Project.com. This has been the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off, but I will be back next week. Do join us then.